0: Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two investors from DCVC Data Collective. I'm here with Scott Barclay and James Hardiman. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. James, give us a, give us a little bit on DCVC. What, what's the thesis there?
1: Yeah. So DCVC is a seed and series A focused venture fund. So we really try to get involved in companies at the early stages. And our thesis is one of AI and deep tech. So we're interested in applying machine intelligence to different problems as well as companies where there's some kind of fundamental technological or
0: engineering breakthrough that really underpins the company. We're here today to talk about uh, health health and bio. So, James, if the last 50 years uh, was about the semiconductor revolution, why is the next 50 years about the biological revolution? Unpack that a bit.
1: Yeah, so I think our ability to characterize biological systems has really increased and a lot of people point at Eroom's law, which is kind of this reverse Moore's law, right? So as the cost of sequencing has really declined. Um so I think not only our ability to capture data about biological systems and that's just that's just one way of of characterizing a biological system. There's lots of other processes or data that kind of define biology, uh, but I think that's one that's easy to point at. We also have tools that allow us to kind of understand how all of these systems interrelate. So biological systems are very complex. There's many different features. And so kind of the big data tools and AI tools that many people are talking about are really ripe for pointing at these kinds of systems. And I think the the convergence of these two things is allowing us to make many advances in how to understand these things. And then also the advance in our ability to manipulate these systems. And I think the the one that's made the most noise is CRISPR. So we can kind of go in and very finely edit these systems. And I think that's really the basis for experimentation. So we can describe something and we can very finely edit it. And that's going to allow us to iterate uh, and manipulate these systems to to tackle different problems.
0: And how does that relate to your personal thesis leading the computational bio stuff at at DCBC?
1: Health in general is a very large part of the U.S. economy. There's just a lot of value uh, caught up in it. And so as we're better able to kind of describe these systems, then manipulate them, we can use that to develop therapies. But I also think it means we can start pointing at other parts of the economy that traditionally haven't been touched by biology. So, you know, there's a lot. Like which ones? So parts of the economy that kind of traditionally have been touched by bio is converting some kind of feedstock into some high value kind of output chemical, right? That's kind of a well-known biological process. However, things like the microbiome, we've started to realize are are very kind of unique to maybe a product's path or its origin, and you can start inspecting things like the microbiome to do supply chain authentication. You know what factory in China did this this product come from? And those are the kinds of things where you know if you ask someone 10, 15 years ago, they probably wouldn't even thought of supply chain as something that biology could apply to. But it turns out that there's actually some really interesting and unique applications as the cost to characterize those things continues to fall.
0: Scott, unpack your computational care thesis a little bit, and how does that differ from what you guys doing computational bio and just digital health more broadly?
2: You're great.
0: Um, listen, we're really happy to be here, Eric, thank you and you're on a great pod and we love uh, the storytelling.
2: So thanks for having us here. So computational care, I'll give it a couple of jumping off points. So if I had to define it briefly, I would say it's how we're thinking about pushing compute closer to the patient and the patient journey. But our desire is not just about optimizing the individual. It's really recognizing an oligopolistic sclerotic system which fails to serve them very well which increasingly, if you include downstream cost, approaches 22% of GDP for health outcomes less than uh, some of our um, northern European industrialized nations, which are around 9%. And so while it's pushing compute closer to the patient, it's also asking where and how you should take a crowbar to a system that doesn't work well today. The way it compares to computational biology is a couple of ways in which it's different and for which we think timing and complexity of go-to-market can be more fraught. So I would say they definitely are similar in that when we see an early team in these two spaces, there has to be something special about the compute and something special about the founder where they really know the domain, where they have a view that they can somehow push a computational tool that creates evidence that's better and higher or a discovery unlike what we've had previous. In computational care, we have the additional burden that it somehow has to fit in to some world that already exists, which is pretty broken. So there usually has to be some empathy, and I don't mean that we're all just sympathetic to make patients healthier. I mean, empathy in the sense of you have to understand either that workflow that you're fitting into, or that you're just going to try to entirely replace, or somehow empathetically understand the person for whom what you're fundamentally doing is changing a piece of knowledge and probably some piece of how they'll take a decision or an action differently. So as a result, the computational care portfolio often spends a lot more time around cross-disciplinary complex teams. And also, while there has to be very something very special kind of in the technology We have to already be thinking a couple of steps ahead where, well, if true, how does it scale into a dysfunctional market? So we love to ask, well, do we think we have a secret on getting to market in a world in which many well-honed, experienced, hardened entrepreneurs have have uh,
0: bloodied the foreheads of the brick walls of trying to get into the payer or the provider or whatever their their target is? Why – you mentioned 22%. Why is – sort of U.S. healthcare sort of uniquely broken in that sense that it's 22% of GDP relative to some of these Northern European countries you were, you were talking about?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, Without well, being too esoteric, I just want to acknowledge like Commonwealth Fund and others will show us at around 18% and rising. I just consider the downstream cost of lots of ways in which we bankrupt families and provide a lack of social services, which in other countries help alleviate and remove. So if, when I get to the 22%, I'm adding costs that we pay, pay as a society but even elsewhere. 18 is very high. Yeah, so why? Yeah. Well, you know, that's its own deep, long historical podcast. It starts in a couple of places. I'll, I'll cherry pick a couple that I think are the something near the top of the list. Said many times before by people smarter than myself, there's an employer driven view of how you pay for healthcare coming out of World War II, which creates a really dysfunctional set of misaligned incentives. Now, I'm not saying that the employers are the problem, although I'd love for them to have more bravery in how they want to affect the system, but that's the beginning of an inefficient system. Far more into how I would allocate dollars, like if you did a breakdown from that 22% and just said, well, maybe in the US, 13 would be the right number. If I did a waterfall to break down, the biggest would be overlapping dysfunctional oligopolies. So it's not just enough to say that if you go into a market and you have an oligopolistic large provider that for the same quality or often less quality, they charge much higher prices. But that is combined with the fact that the same is true for the payer and the same is true for the PBM driving certain costs and inefficiencies. Uh, within the medication frame. The same is true as we get into certain, not just is it on patent or not pharmaceutical path, but are in all of the lots of games that pharma can play to keep things off of being truly competitive, which is all combined, you know, combined with other niche markets. So there are niche markets in US healthcare that, you know, my m- mom has never heard of. And yet I can show you is a three to five billion dollar market. So it's this combination of overlapping oligopolies that I think is so hard for people to unwind. There's really wonderful health policy experts and journalists who've taking shots at this. But I seldom see the knowledge of that complexity bleeding through into how an entrepreneur just wants to go really fast and break into a market. So we try to think globally around those complexities. But then, I mean, at heart, we're going to get it right by supporting and serving founders who are trying to do something specific to begin with. So we have to have some initial wedge that we think is special, but also some kind of crowbar to this this longer term system. Yeah.
0: What are examples of initial wedges that you, that you really like or that you recommend entrepreneurs pursue? And similarly, what are examples of attempted wedges that you find just, just don't really work? Well, I can give a couple of examples, but I'm not sure what the lesson would be. So for example,
2: there's a prior authorization process. So if you want to do something that's relatively expensive for various reasons, let me assume there's both good and bad intentions. The payers have ways of raising flags to slow you down, to slow down that spend. Um, that's true on the medication, that's true on the medical, it's true on the procedure side. So around 2009, so by, by background, you know, I'm really a generalist, but I'm about 15 years until you take small teams and you try to build hard special product at the intersection of health and data. And, uh, you know, if I were hit by a bus tomorrow and someone did the work, one of the things that we helped create in the last generation was how you could move the prescription electronically and helped create and then scale that. And as you connect all those end nodes, one of the things that became obvious was, well, wait, if you're moving the prescription electronically, there's all these adjacent opportunities. How to enable better decision support as you're making those decisions. At that moment of prescription writing, well, why don't you just solve the medication prior authorization problem? Oh, why don't we give real-time cost and benefit information at the granular personalized level right at that moment? Now, in the past 30 seconds, I've just identified that there's a network for e-prescribing that succeeded. So we did that. Prior authorization was modestly improved by some really great hacking around the prior authorization queue inside the pharmacy, inside the payer, um, inside the doctor's office, and all, and subsidized by pharma by a startup out of Columbus called Cover My Meds, which McKesson acquired for about 1.4 billion last year. So about 12-year entrepreneurial journey. It's not a classic perfect Silicon Valley story. What was interesting about Cover My Meds to me was that very few in the valley including good health investors that actually noticed that or picked up on it. And yet it was doing something that was hard and complex. And I don't think it's one that a wonderful technology entrepreneur could have broken into per se. There's a reason that that team knew about the problem. And they were a combination of provider experts, pharma experts, and just a really good entrepreneurial software guy um, who ended up leading the company. I don't have an amazing takeaway from that other than to identify, well, that's a relatively huge story that of course is known in Columbus. It's definitely known across the pharmaceutical supply chain and the pharmacy environment. But other than that, it still has been relatively quiet. And part of this conversation, we're going to talk about where we're taking big shots versus where we're being incremental. And with Cover My Meds, what we're talking about is something that is incrementally, it's solving a very valuable problem. Because if you have a prior authorization on a medication, on average, it's going to take 10 days to resolve that. So if you can turn that into a Staples easy button 30 minute process, that impacts outcomes because you're going to get meds to patients faster. But my point is there's an example of a big success that almost no one has heard of that fundamentally is just trying to take an incremental shot at an arbitrary system set up by a sclerotic system. Whereas we also love to talk about companies that either are doing something 50 times better than how it's done in an analog or a a faux digital way today, or that look at the world and say, I'm just not going to mess with the system. I'm going to pull the necessary pieces out. I'm not going to have dependencies. I mean, it's going to be more expensive and we're
0: going to build it full stack. And is there a framework for when entrepreneurs should think about when to do both, when to go incremental versus when to take a crowbar to the existing system?
2: That's a great question. One of the things, so I'm not enamored with venture capital, but I've come to really love it for a couple of reasons. It's an amazing place to learn in a certain way and to challenge yourself in how you learn. It's an amazing place to think about what can you work on today and how does it unlock things in the future? When it comes to this computational care space, I think we have just enough experience that in some ways... When we know we're about to walk in and meet a really interesting but really early company the first time, in some ways, I walk in with no formula. I just want to meet them where they are, and there's not like five or six core questions that we're asking. But as soon as we understand the problem that they think they're working on, we'll ask ourselves a number of initial questions around, how do you get a certain type of short-term momentum? And relative to us, it would be around, why do you have something that's already special? How do you create a technological moat? or a data or a data network effects mode very quickly. But then we also have to think about, and if that's true, how can you scale that alongside or within this uh, sclerotic system and kind of trying to play that out a couple of steps? You might wanna go back to, I've probably fallen away from your original
0: question. Is there a framework for identifying when an entrepreneur should try to build something within the system or incremental versus outside the system? And if there's no framework, general framework, that's fine too.
2: There's not a set framework. It starts with the problem that they're solving, And with how well we think the current world can evolve with that versus a belief of just how much will that need to be incrementally evolved over 10 to 15 years versus entirely replaced. So I'll give you a couple of examples. If a founder came to me and thought they could impact primary care, in that example, if they're doing something to make primary care the way it works today a little bit better, that's not going to be a great fit for Data Collective. One is there's almost nothing about primary care 15 years from now that we think looks like today. So we're already would be investing into a world we don't like. And the second is of the hard, hard problems, trying to repeatedly scale within primary care practices, both within larger systems and small ambulatory offices is a really hard, very, very hard go to market problem. So I'm using that example to say, well, gosh, if you have the better answer on primary care, What's the version of what that looks like full stack? Because we have several theories as to how primary care will evolve, and most of them will be new types of full stacks. By contrast, if you showed me, and I'm actually anticipating this and we're starting to see this, an entirely new and better philosophical platform to think about the EMR. Well, there is no EMR without selling into large institutionalized healthcare. So the question we're going to immediately be having is, is that within the kill zone of Epic and Cerner? Why is it different? Is there a secret in a way that it can be used and gain adoption before in the long run kind of flipping the switch and becoming the system of record and the thing that is the kind of the digital monolith that right now is very much holding the system back. So we're very open and even looking for new forms of what we will, we'll probably call it something else, but we think the EMR will die. Um, we think it'll be replaced by things much better. So I think we are in a Sega Genesis world at best and the way that the world works um, and those Types of platform revolutions look pretty untenable and impossible until they happen. And then suddenly the world changes very quickly. So that's one where you would be selling into the system. It's your only customer, frankly, but it would be a pretty different technological base than what exists today.
1: Yeah. I might, I might say if, if you're selling to the patient or you're selling to the employer. Then I think there's an opportunity to exist outside the system and rethink what you're delivering and how maybe those people think about health. But if you're selling to a hospital or if you're selling to a doctor, then I think you, by definition, almost exist within the system. And it's really hard to fight, you know, to fight the system when, when who you're selling to are people that are participants in that system. That makes sense.
2: And I'll actually, let me dig into that just a tad. We're at about 5,900 hospitals in the US. I think we live in a future. Where there's a coming recession or even depression in that market, and by the way, there's huge political implications because they've become the the, by far the largest growth of U.S. healthcare employment in in recent years. Like it's often driven by healthcare administrative workers in some form. I think we live in a future. You know, if you modeled us on Denmark, we'd be at like 1,900 hospitals. I think we live in a future aside from massive societal political intervention, where hospitals will get framed down to. 2,500, 3,000 in this country, that much of what happens in the hospital, as we've been speaking about for 15 years, will start to happen, which is we are seeing jobs shift out of the hospital, jobs meaning jobs to be done, activities, the problems that you're solving. There's a point at which the way the hospital is dysfunctional, cross-subsidized, and kind of built in a type of late 1970s mechanism, um, which at certain point fails. That doesn't mean there's not wonderful hospitals. In fact, we think the things the hospitals are best at, they'll start to get better at, um, the best hospitals will actually grow with more largesse. We'll start to have more branding, more power, more quality metrics. In other words, uh, things like ER, OR, and ICUs will take up an increasingly, uh, increasing percentage of hospital spend. And the percentage of provider care that's happening outside of the hospital will, will increase. So we're expecting in some ways a radically tra- transformed space. Now, if you put me the timing, I would say, you know, I, I cheat and I'd say, well, 10 to 20 years which is obviously a fraught timeline to invest in a startup this moment. So that's why more at the startup level, it's more what's the job and is is now the time you can really make a lot of progress. But we have created this computational care portfolio with a long-term view. Um, there's not a pressure that we have to do two or 15 deals this year. What we're looking for are things that make tremendous sense and perfect alignment with the way that Data Collective helps companies while taking about a 15-year view of we are going to get to a radically different environment. It's going to be painful in some ways, delightfully wonderful in others, but pretty different.
0: Before getting into requests for startups, I have a couple more macro questions. One is if you could wave a wand and change any type of regulation that you wanted to either of you, what, what would you change?
1: Well, we were talking a little bit beforehand. This is a little bit of a pivot on your question, which was you know, can markets fix healthcare or can markets exist with healthcare? And if there was one thing that I would change about the system, I think I think we need a payer that's incentivized for a patient's long term health. So I think part of the problem with the system is most costs manifest late in life when that burden is on the government. And so payers tend not to be incentivized to pay for preventative care if the disease is going to manifest you know, 10, 15, 20 years or longer into the future. If, if there was one thing I could change about the system, it would be that. It would be something that could align long-term incentives with current decision making. Is it like income share agreements? Or what are mechanisms by which that could actually happen? Well, so single payer systems, by definition, have that. Yeah, and there could you know there. Are, I don't know what the answer is, but I you know there might be opportunities to to think about how you can shift forward in time, kind of the cost with the long term with long term care. I don't have a great thesis at this point around around how to how to do that, but you know outside of a single payer system. But I do think there there's a huge opportunity if, if you could do that, it, it could fix a lot of the misalignments with the system. I'll answer by doing a thought experiment.
2: I, mean, I guess my my well my first answer to your question is it is amazing how politicized trying to work on what is a hard set of esoteric questions can become. And the second is, I think, although I in no way give a false equivalence, but our political economic environment has really failed to ask the right societal questions. And it's not just about access and coverage, but I'm going to hold back from weighing in on things that become inherently political. Another thing I would say, actually, I would go back to that list of like the few levers you could pull. I'm not sure what the current mindset is of the FTC in relation to market power and certain market behaviors. But for me, there's a clear breakdown of a fresh modern framework on these overlapping oligopolies. There's a lot of insidious, ridiculous behavior where the predominance of the spend is being paid for by the taxpayer directly or indirectly. And where the organization with the largest amount of profit seeking continues to defend those profit pools with little to no civic or appropriate economic value. To be clear, we're early stage venture capitalists. We are very, very capitalistic. So I'm from the camp where if you see capitalism as an appropriate societal application of time and money uh, and value you actually want clean clear antitrust policy that's enforced so i would say it's neither clean nor clear presently and you want clean and clear regulations that are relatively consistent so i'm not going after any one regulatory body other than than to say that we've gotten our place we've gotten ourselves into this place where the the hospital bill that a patient receives today, even now, just read Rosenthal's book. There's you know so much evidence. If you don't look at the experience of a patient who's returned from a hospital and then whose family within a year is bankrupt, and realize this is a system that's preying on all of us that we've somehow allowed, and yet we have not been able to politically unwind those complexities, um, you, you realize the system is not paying attention to that, that. That our our governing mechanisms are broken, and I and I would love to fix that. Uh, but that's not what we get paid to do every day. We get paid to find founders. So then I'm I'm not going to answer your question in a totally different way. We really like bundled payments. So we all in an incentivized world want to get from a world that's from fee-for-service to value-based, the way that you pay for healthcare in a value-based way. I generally, when I see those plans, I'm relatively skeptical. And the reason is because so much of what's actually possible and what ends up happening around value-based payments goes back to, unsurprisingly, the oligopolistic market share of the players within that market. So show me an ACO and ask me my prediction of will they really improve outcomes and save money, and I will say, well, show me the market share of those payers and show me the market share of those providers, and I'll give you a hint. Bundle payments, by contrast, if CMS and a consortium of large and mid-sized employers could get together and agree on math called bundle payments and allow for a suitable amount of time to encourage that some significant portion... Of healthcare expenditure happens in episodes for which a bundle would be appropriate. I can accelerate to a world, so I'm not saying this world will exist, but there is a version of the world where primary care is very broad. It's more expensive than it is today, but it is foundational. It's amazing. It's branded. It's personalized in a way. There'll be many different flavors of primary care, have a lot of consumer choice. Where there's a world where there's primary care, where the vast majority of inpatient and complex spend happens within bundle payments, And we probably have new forms of catastrophic reinsurance. I could create an entire U.S. healthcare system just within those three buckets. Now, there's a tremendous amount of unwinding. I just put out of business most of the payers and a significant number of oligopolistic providers when I just said that. But there's a version 10 or 15 years where that's possible. But that's just one version of the world. We obviously invest in a version. We invest in a future where we think that's possible. But we also invest in in a future where we think some of
1: the oligopolies hold and others don't. I'd say just to jump off that, Scott, I do think there is a lot of leverage in the system to be, if you control how the, how the dollars flow. And so I think the bundled payments is, you know, how can you shift dollars around within a particular episode, right? And prevent over, over consumption of care because the doctor, you know, there, there's no downside risk to them, right? They're just trying to make sure they don't get sued for malpractice, right? In their attempt to, to treat a particular patient. Um, and so they're no, they're, they're never doing this cost benefit of like, well, is it really worth doing kind of this, this extra test? And so I think if you want to influence those kinds of decisions, you know, thinking about how can you iterate or change how the money flows and how people are incentivized, I think, I think is really important. There's a lot of leverage at that, at that point in the system. You know, and I think my point earlier about, kind of shifting in time the cost for long-term care or preventative care. I don't have good answers around that, but I do think within individual, I totally agree with Scott that bundled payments is a really interesting way within a particular episode to think about how to align incentives. Um and so I do think, you know, entrepreneurs that are trying to change how people
0: get paid or reinvent the insurer, I think is a really interesting opportunity. Is there a framework for when it makes sense to add markets to existing healthcare systems or create new markets or when it makes sense to no, we shouldn't leave that up to mar- a market mechanism.
1: Well, so I don't think there is a great I don't I don't think the healthcare market is really that great of a market. There's very little price transparency. It's very difficult for the consumer to kind of discern quality. And in general, the decision maker and the payer and the I guess consumer are three different parties. And so it's very difficult to get, you know, good alignment of incentives, like we talked about. So I think an opportunity to bring better market dynamics to healthcare in general is a huge opportunity. So if you can bring better price transparency if you can help consumers have the ability to understand which providers are going to be able to provide better quality of care um, and then if you're able to expose them to more of the cost so they're incentivized to pick a lower cost higher quality you know provider then i think that can bring better market dynamics to it um, and i know i strayed from your question a little bit but i think Healthcare just is not a good market. And if you bring typical market dynamics or market thinking to it, it's just, it doesn't work.
2: I think if we're looking for a philosophy you're hearing from us on the side, it's that we're open. We're obviously like one of the things that's wonderful about early stage venture is there's things you think you're looking for. And then there's the light of being close enough that you have the chance to meet a founder who teaches you something around how the future will work. And then there's something combinatorial where you're adding value. So I think one thing you're hearing philosophically is we're looking for how you can create appropriate competition. U.S. healthcare is actually anti-competitive. And even where it is quote unquote competitive, it's usually competing on the wrong, on the wrong vectors. So where you can bring true competition, and I would just say for us, there is a clear line. There's a number of things where we think you can make money, but we think it net creates a societal deficit of some sort. So we're only interested in competition that we think unlocks positive value. And we think there's, you know, so many opportunities that we can just ignore the ones that we look at and think, well, I don't want to go after any you know specific investments or silos. But there's a number of things where we think, oh, that could make money. We don't think that's a good guy. So we're looking for ones, for example, that unlock this sclerotic system. And yet somehow the level of
0: evidence uh, is increased with the level of transparency increases, et cetera. So let's get into sort of requests for startups. And maybe one way I'll phrase this is, if you guys were starting a company or a set of companies in the, in sort of the space that could be considered within the CVC strike zone. And you had all the, you know, the required skills or, re- or resources to, to do so. What sort of opportunities might you guys individually would pursue or be most excited about? Or, you know, when really talented entrepreneurs who have all the required skills come to you and say, Hey, I'm sort of exploring ideas within, within this clerotic system. Where do you point them?
1: Well, I've been thinking, I'm, most of my thinking in this space has been on the computational biology side. So I think there's an opportunity to rethink what Kind of an AI first pharma company would look like and really from every part of the stack to apply computation to, to improving it. So everywhere from, you know, better data collection and characterization of disease. So I think many diseases, we don't, we don't really know exactly on what level of biology they, they manifest. And there's a lot of complex diseases. We don't know exactly what's involved in them. So so there's a lot of opportunity to to understand that better, to kind of computationally testing molecules, right? And so if you have a structure and you can run through, you know, a million compounds to test that structure in silico. And so you don't actually have to run kind of the wet lab experiment to test it. All the way through kind of clinical development up to can we use AI to better identify patients and recruit them into clinical trials? Can we think about some of the ethical implications around control arms in clinical trials? Now, the three examples that I gave are companies that DCVC has already invested in, but there's so much money at really every step of this process that I think there's an opportunity for startups to really go targeted and deep on each of these. So maybe that's the framework that I would give on the computational biology side, specific asks I would have better kind of data collection and description of disease. So if you have access to unique patient populations and you can use that to understand new targets, I think that's fundamentally interesting. RDMD, um, we did, we did one that's doing exactly that for rare diseases. Oh, great. Yep. So I think, I think there's a ton of opportunity kind of at the very front end. I also think there's a, there's, there's a lot of value in clinical trials kind of specifically and you're right before you get approval. So pharma has a willingness to pay. Um And if you can drive kind of operational efficiency there and shorten trials and lower the the number of patients or improve probabilities of success, I think there's a lot of opportunity around there as well.
2: Well, we've mentioned um, bundle payments, primary care, and the EMR as like fundamental areas where we're expecting a ton in the next 10 years. One place where we're expecting transformation, but we're already taking, we think, more than just little arrow shots is in aging. That would include both aging in place as well as, for lack of a better word, institutional aging. There's no experience. I've never been into an aging environment where I think, yeah, that's that's really that's the environment where I am going to help take care of my mom in 25 years. Mom, maybe it's 35. Sorry, <laughs> And that includes the ways that we don't handle complexity and move the right services at the right time with the right intelligence so that she can remain independent. And if, um, if and when she's not able to be independent, while there's many well-meaning, wonderful people working on this problem, we are still not there yet in creating the right intelligence at the institutional level, uh, to take care of people institutionally in a way that preserves dignity, keeps them safe. It creates the right levels of value. It, it's a race to the bottom environment in many ways. We spend a lot of time in what I would call deeper clinical informatics. That's a place where. There's some pretty amazing people who have a clinical background who are deeper and deeper in data science where we have not yet seen the number and the specificity and ambition of companies that I think we're going to see. I'm not saying it'll be in two months, but I spend a lot of time with cross-disciplinary teams or people at that intersection because we've already seen so much of what's possible with probabilities and inferencing and intelligence off of pieces of data Uh, And we're coming very close. So right, so the last 10 or 15 years, we've digitized a lot that was on paper. It's still dysfunctional. We still have massive problems around data blocking, lack of data sharing. We're still doing many things that are complex. If you create a great bioinformatics company today and you show up again, you're probably up against the oligopoly in some way. There's a lot of messy data problems. All of that said, I have seen things that I think are harder than rocket science, and I've seen them true, and there's no reason they can't scale. And yet I have not seen those things in the hands of a pharmacist. To make that interaction just 15 times more intelligent. We haven't seen informatics truly revolutionize what triage and the front door to care looks like. We're going to see that. We haven't seen informatics create a combination of the checklist manifesto plus the inferencing doctor, you know, as an orb kind of sitting on your shoulder as the home health worker walks into an aging in place, uh, 67 year old with four uh, comorbid chronic conditions and enables that care extender to both collect and ask the right questions in a way that the system is not only more personalized for that patient, but actually learning from the experience. So you, there's a very large number of what I think of as like deep clinical bioinformatics startups that will be created in the next 10 years. And I hope we get to meet every single one of them, honestly. And we're willing to kind of slog through that and pay it forward because we think that we'll, that we'll do some special stuff there.
1: We talked about insurance earlier. So I also think about what would an AI first insurer look like? and if you were to rethink how you can align incentives there. So I'm really excited about that idea. If
0: this is a if this is an explicit call out to people working on startups to reach out, if you're working on that reach out. Got into post you also mentioned you're excited about the future of CROs, PBMs, wholesalers, GPOs. Any any anything there that you want to call it more specifically in terms of where you want entrepreneurs to pursue?
2: Yeah, this is going back to those niche areas in US healthcare that are actually quite large and the people in them know that they're large. I think we'll start to see some new cross-disciplinary teams in these spaces. Like you mentioned, CROs, people who do deep cross-market prior authorization processes, um, the GPOs, uh, which are you know kind of supply chain aggregators of supply and demand. The startups that will come and make a huge difference in even replacing some of these markets will often come to the table with two or three founders where one of these founders will be deeply enmeshed and understand how the world works today. And you can't just show up and say, we're going to disrupt and make the world a better place and turn these markets inside out. They, they have a lot of complexity. On the other hand, they have a tremendous amount of lethargy and there's a significant amount of margin explicitly and implicitly available there. Within those markets, I'd also say you need to think carefully about the kill zones of the larger platforms. So that's the place where I've expected Amazon to make the most difference in the next 10 years. So if I met a startup tomorrow who had their eyes on how they could take out Premier and be the you know, pristine GPO, the main thing I'd want to understand is why two years from now, even if Amazon decided to do that, they wouldn't be able to. And you know that's a high bar. But my point is that there, are, there must be 20 of these types of vertical markets. And uh, we actually love to see these
0: vertical niche areas and ask how you might en- envision those spaces differently. What about sort of consumer healthcare companies? And I look at a couple of different business models. One is the sort of NERCS for X, you know, Hims, ROMAN, you know, all these types of companies. The other is sort of, you know, one medical for X, sort of segmentation about, you know, TIA, one medical for women's health, or motion clinical, one medical for musculoskeletal. You know, we're just looking at one medical for pet care. What do you think about sort of these consumer models? So I'm
2: very, very bullish. I'm sure at some point we'll overplay it. There are things where you where there's a level of clinical complexity. And I'm sure one or two of these startups will drop a couple of drops of poison in the well by extending themselves and making claims they shouldn't. But hopefully we're in a legal and a regulatory framework. Well, that'll get pulled back. That said, anywhere where you can solve a legitimate clinical problem in a type of full-stack way so that you can now think in terms of empathy and brand and delivery and reach that individual. If you can do that outside of the way the system works today, there's a to previous conversations, there's plenty of margin to funnel that i do want to be clear we have an asset in the space it's called alpha medical what that's really looking at is it's looking at some of these single shot consumer clinical verticals and asking is there not just even a better platform but is there a better way is there a better way to think about clinical complexity and in a way in which you can do that where it's raising the bar of clinical efficacy but in a way that is so deeply empathetically consumer centric Um, so I like this clinical vertical space and alpha is going to be, going to be our shot on that or or a first shot on that. Um, I think you'll see this in many spaces, right? So when we think about diabetes, and I'm sure there's still a tremendous amount of room, I still have a lot of respect for Verda, not an investment of ours, but I have respect for it from basically taking a stand, always trying to look for, escalate and be honest about the clinical evidence of what they're trying to achieve and, and saying that, you know, for this patient, this is the way you could build the better world for this patient. And I'm just using that to reflect back to your question to say, I think we will see this more and more. And in a way, we'll have to think about how does the ecosystem get smarter at supporting that patient when they're not only within that frame? That's a future problem. But for now, I think you'll see an explosion of clinical
1: verticals. So, so Scott, I'm, I think I'm going to take, take the other side of that one. I feel that some of these new providers, you know, they're targeting, they're targeting a part of the healthcare system where most of the spend and the problems don't, don't really lie. So, you know, one medical, you know, there's a annual membership fee that you need to pay. And what that does is it kind of, it it segments the market so that you only get access to kind of the healthiest, highest socioeconomic status people that are kind of opting into this system. And it kind of leaves the, you know, the lower socio- socioeconomic people, the people who don't have kind of, uh, you know, the resources to otherwise kind of better care for yourself – better care for themselves or for whom health is maybe a lower priority relative to others. And so even though these might make good investments, I feel like fundamentally they're not fixing the system in kind of a broader way. Well, let me take that
2: one. So I yeah, we don't agree. I'm going to tell you why I think one medical is wonderful and then also why I think it still may not be the answer. I'm not sure. The reason it's wonderful is uh similar to starting with those first versions of Tesla where he was really making a point around setting up the supply chain differently, and fundamentally making a bet on the battery. One Medical was fundamentally saying the process, the flow of primary care five years ago, 10 years ago, and for most of us even still today, is just not an acceptable process. And it's not the process that patients want. And it's not one that leads to the right interaction because it creates a seven-minute interaction. It's creating physician burnout where the numbers are kind of through the roof. So One Medical did initially feel concierge and high-end-ish. But with success, what it's really doing is it's teaching the systems what responsive, thoughtful, empathetic primary care can look like. And as it's had the, as it had the initial wedge success with a certain type of consumer, it is now predominantly starting to glue onto the system. So I don't know the numbers. Amir Rubin, someone that would be interesting for you to talk to, Eric. He's, he's a wonderful interviewer. And I know our friends at Bessemer had him on their podcast recently and is, you know, is in depth and is thoughtful. And one of the takeaways was, the predominant customer for One Medical today is uh, is the large employer who has not found a way to work in collaboration with the provider systems today to provide a better product. So the employer is subsidizing what you would have thought of as that personal consumer fee. And as a result, the kind of responsiveness, the ability to have a real-time but longitudinal relationship, the ability to have the doctor call you back within 30 minutes, uh, regardless of context and what time at night it is. It's just something that the current systems and their lack of competition can't match. So one medical may be a great example of you start with a certain wedge and you grow into it. And you, at some point you have to like in a sticky way, come back around the system. Now, where I'm not convinced is that one medical is still primary care for everyone. And I think in the future, primary care will actually be deeply clinical. It'll be much even broader functionally across mental health, social cycle. It'll encompass multiple aspects of your long-term uh, longitudinal life. And it will be specific to people you or people just like you. So I don't think the primary care a practice that I go to in 10 years is in any way the same company that my then 23-year-old daughter will go to and won't be anything like what my then 82-year-old mother will go to, et cetera. Uh, so I think the world will in some ways get broader, more personalized, more branded, more functional. And I'm not sure that the primary care companies of that future exist today.
1: Um, although forward,
2: And one medical and one or two others maybe have a
1: chance. So what I'm hearing is a stratification of uh, the form in which that care is delivered. So the point that I I think I heard you just made is that your 20-year-old daughter is going to want to consume her primary care in a particular way, and that will be different from how you will consume it in 10 years, and that will be different from how your mother consumes it.
2: I think that'll be driven by consumer preference, absolutely. and It almost seems obvious, and I think it'll be obvious in retrospect, but to your original objection that's how the dollars will flow, right? So, uh, the way we will take care of the reason we're seeing a burgeoning of innovation and Medicare advantage is it's an opportunity space to just holistically rethink how you take care of that, you know, 69 year old with four comorbid conditions, but has a realistic chance to 25 years of, of happy life. Like there's a tremendous amount of pent up possible catastrophic spend that you can head off if you do these things holistically. So, really great primary care for the 68-year-old is going to look different and be more expensive and have totally different anchors and hooks and pieces and levers
0: than what will be for my 23-year-old daughter then. Yeah. What interesting wedges or startups have you seen trying to tackle the aging space that you're you're impressed by or or you want to see tackle the aging space in, in some some way? Like what sort of requests for startups there? Well, we
2: can be really brief on a couple that we don't hesitate to have already taken the shot. So, Swift Medical is computer vision on the smartphone at the bedside around wound care and a disproportionate amount of the patients that are being served there are older, particularly since we're now legitimately breaking into both hospitals and home health. And the core initial market is in almost every sniff. very shortly being almost every sniff uh, across the country, the skilled nursing facility. So that's one. James and I together do Safely You. You should talk about yeah. Safely You.
1: So Safely You is also a computer vision-based company. And they use that to care for dementia patients. So with dementia, you know, the number one, the number one problem is falls and the number two problem is elopement. And those are very difficult to kind of classify. So there's lots of kind of existing products, wearables, bed alarms that try and understand when a patient falls. And they're all extremely poor. Um, and so safely you takes a camera, you know, puts it in a patient's room and is able to use computer vision to classify when they fall or when they try and slip out the window. And this is again, kind of a massive problem, um, in this, in this particular space. And I think the, you know, the common thread here is one that I would expand on, which is I think computer vision has been a massive breakthrough. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity to apply it to a number of different problems, particularly in this space where there's just not enough kind of skilled and qualified people to care for our elderly, particularly as that population continues to expand. And so I imagine there'll be a number of companies that are taking that kind of core fundamental asset and pointing it at at different problems
2: if you look at, go back to the theme around, we're expecting amazing things out of deep clinical informatics. We'll look at who's the worker empathetically touching our aging parents and why are we not souping them up with some amazing level of intelligence that's walking alongside them in that journey. So that's just an example.
0: What what data sets do you think we haven't, we haven't captured yet that are sort of non-obvious that might have a real interesting value? Maybe it's sleep data or maybe it's I mean, you know, companies doing interesting things with, you know, food intake or exercise or what are other sort of ancillary data sets that you think is a big opportunity to capture and, and make sense of it? I think
1: this is, this is hard to answer in the general case because the data set is so, the relevant data set is so, is so important to this specific problem. And in health in general, I think a lot of, a lot of what we should do, people already know, you know, exercise, Eat plants, not too much meat, don't eat too much in general, sleep enough. And if everyone did those things, you know, a lot of people would be a lot healthier and it's going to be a really targeted, the the relevant data set is going to be really targeted. So with Safely You, you need falls data, you need video of people falling and to label that. And that's a really hard data set to collect. And it's one that if you didn't set out to build this company, you couldn't just go find it somewhere. And if you weren't building this company, you probably also wouldn't collect it. Uh, And so I think uh, what we should do is we should start with the end problem in mind. Like, what is a really big problem? And can we point AI or some version of that at that problem? And if that's the case, then you can work backward and start asking what data set we can collect uh, and would be relevant. Not as interesting of a of an answer as maybe you were hoping for, but I think that's that's the algorithm that people should follow when they're when they're asking themselves that question.
2: If I listen to the interview of us in my own ears, it's interesting. You're not hearing that we just go after the market looking for little piece part data sets. It's actually not the strategy or the framework. Um, I will, however, make a couple more umbrella comments. We love to look for places where the supposed evidence on which we're making decisions today we suspect in the long run we will look back and say. Can you believe the heuristics with which we were treating all of us then? And look what we know now. I'll give you two examples one of which we made an investment, and one in which we will continue to look, and we have very long patients. So, we did a company called Medical Informatics, which sits on top of the ICU. It's kind of deep compute on top of the ICU. Now, there is no lack of technology and waveform and clinical data in the ICU, it's the opposite. It's the most cacophonous, loud, data driven environment but it's actually not put together in an intelligent way. It's never synchronized, standardized. It's not even saved. Like 97% of the form in that room is not saved. So medical informatics is a platform that only, it does all of that. It saves all of it, synchronizes it, standardizes it. And then you can start to apply, and it'll have to be FDA certified, you know, predictive algorithms and inferences so that you can not only see the patient's trajectory, but you can look and anticipate the deterioration. I get excited about that for second and third order effects, which is at scale that will then enable... The world's best institutions to share uh, algorithmic uh, insight will start to rewrite clinical guidelines with data in certain ways, and the data will be more interrogable from a research standpoint. So I think in the long run, a significant portion of what we do in the ICU at the personalized level can be much more intelligent. There's something very true in a similar fashion around the EMR, and let's just be clear, there's almost nothing about how the EMR is implemented today, the reason it exists, the way that those transaction flows work which actually enable a learning ecosystem. So whether it's on top of the current pipes or empowered by entirely new data streams like voice, at some point when you're standing in front of a patient, you will be able to do at least an Amazon-ish patients like this, you know, previous actions we took, output we received, what eventually happened, et cetera. But before I make it sound like we can just be flippantly inferencing off of past data, I also want to point out we have a massive science and replication of studies problem and it, there's a fair amount of evidence that that's even worse in parts of the industry that have been he- more heavily funded by significant moneyed interest, such that the bar for scientific clinical evidence uh, has tended to get lower in recent years. This is not a comment on the FDA per se, although it could be from some. I'm just saying there's multiple places where we deploy tremendous spend, where in the long run we'll look back and said that evidence wasn't good enough. So I give you a place where we're looking for. From both a workflow and an empathy standpoint and an evidence standpoint, the way most decisions are made in the psych space, um, psychiatry specifically, that will probably be revolutionized once we understand more and probably based on combinatorial data sets, no one's fully put together. So the, the psychiatry experience is going to need to improve, but the clinical evidence on which the world's best psychiatrists are behaving, effectuating, will probably based on what's going to be an increasing evidence base over the coming 10 to 20 years. So we think those come together, uh, and we think that'll lead to totally different therapeutics, totally different modes of interaction, totally different lines of evidence, and it'll need to be done in a way that you know psychiatry does not happen in a bubble. Like this is going
0: to affect, for example, those previous discussions on primary care. I want to be sensitive to, to both of your time in closing. Any last plugs of what you want to see entrepreneurs pursue, or where where people can you know find you guys or learn more about DCVC and what to stay tuned for?
2: Well, my headline would be. We want to see cross-disciplinary teams be more ambitious. So you have to have something where you understand data, you understand your domain, and you have an empathy to how you could solve a problem better, but also to not think in incremental terms. Think about the long-term implications of if you could solve this, what does it lead
1: to? What does it unravel? How can you take much bigger shots on the future? If you're driving a deeper fundamental understanding of biology in a way that's commercially relevant, that's interesting. If you're applying AI to a problem that is massive in size and drives better outcomes at lower costs, I think that's interesting. I think the best way to get in touch with me in particular is through our network. And I think that if you can get someone that I know and trust to vouch for you, That's a high signal to me and I think a strong filter because the best entrepreneurs you're going to need to network yourself to customers. You're going to need to network yourself to to potential hires. And so that signals to me that, you know, you can find your way to me. And so I'd say that's the best way to reach out. Cool.
0: Thank you guys for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks for having us. Thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash networkcatalyst.